0: are you healthy are you healthy perhaps not as healthy as that lady <clears throat> have you eaten your five a day yeah have you done some exercise this weekend now London especially the our kind of middle classes we're pretty consumed with health aren't we health and fitness and we can't keep up I mean you've seen all the even just our food probiotic Free-range diet, caffeine-free, organic sprouts, or whatever it may be, Um, and that is just foods. In order to keep healthy, think about exercise. I mean, how how we keep fit and healthy used to be quite easy a number of years ago. You just went for a run, or got on a bike, or or went for a long walk. Nowadays, you can do Pilates and Zumba and body balance and Tai Chi and Jakari, Power Plate, Viper whatever that is, aqua aerobics, and those things are all available at my gym tomorrow morning. At my gym alone, there are six variations of yoga, some of which I think are just absolutely bonkers. But as a culture, we, we are obsessed, aren't we, with health and fitness. You go to Cafe Nero, you can't just have milk in your coffee. It's either full fat, skinny or soya. How healthy and fit are you? Well, that will depend on a number of factors in your life. Uh, and those should act as indicators and markers to, to help you determine how fit and health, healthy you really are. I was watching this programme the other night on television called uh, The Biggest Loser. I don't know if you've seen it, I've never seen it before, but I watched it for about 10 minutes and felt quite ill. Um, anyway, I think it's on ITV. The basic premise is this. Some people have eaten a little bit too much food, that's to put it politely, and they've not done much exercise too. And they go and put themselves on this program in order to lose as much weight as possible. And they're placed in a team and they have to do challenges and exercises and so on to be the biggest loser of weight, obviously. And they're taught, they're encouraged by these instructors, these lean, muscular beauties of masculinity and femininity. They're amazing people. And they're motivated by the team that they're placed in, either the blue team or the red team and so on. But the aim is ultimately to lose as much weight as possible, to be healthier than they have been. Well, what Paul is showing here to Titus in chapter 2 of uh, this wonderful letter, uh, he's showing Titus how he can determine how fit and healthy they are as a church. Not physically, of course, but spiritually. Uh, what, What will determine how healthy you are as a Christian will be What you are willing to listen to, to learn from, to be motivated by. And that is what we see in this chapter today. He says, teach sound doctrine, listen to it, learn from it. See it exemplified in the people around you. Perhaps more senior people, as we'll see. And this is what Paul calls Titus and the church in Crete Toward The teaching encouraging a particular lifestyle and a way of living is placed at the beginning of this chapter, as I mentioned. I think to make the contrast from the, bit, from the guys at the, the end of the last chapter, in chapter 1, the Cretans and the false teachers that have got inside the Cretan church. So if you just glance back, chapter 1, verse 10, you'll see a bit of a description of what the teachers were like. They're, they're rebellious people, mere talkers, deceivers. Verse 12... This is what Cretans were like, because this is how a Cretan described Cretans. Look at it, verse 12. They're always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Not good propaganda for the island, but there you go. Such people in the church were considered a danger. And Paul instructs Titus, look at it, verse 11, it's pretty strong, to silence them. And in verse 13, to rebuke them. And bring them back to sound doctrine. And what he does is summarizes in that last verse, verse 16. And he says, this is what it's like. They claim to know God. Speaking of the false teachers and the people in Crete, they claim to know God. But by their actions, they deny him. They're detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You see, as I've mentioned in the last few weeks, their belief does not match their behavior. And so by contrast, rather than rejecting the truth, as the false teachers in Crete had done. Titus is encouraged to teach the truth about God and for that to be accepted. Look at chapter two, verse one. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Christians, as we wait in this life, as we seek the the healthy and the joyful life, not fighting against God and what he would desire in our lives, but delighting to live for him, enjoying him today, what, what, what must we do to encourage such living, to m- maintain such joyful union with God, our Saviour? Well, we must teach sound doctrine, Titus is informed, and be teachable by sound doctrine. So we get to our first point, and our only point you'll be mighty for tonight. Teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Another translation, which is a good translation again, puts it, I think, in a helpful way. It says this, "But as for you, promote the kind of living that reflects right teaching. See that bringing together belief and behavior again. So we see there sound doctrine. There is a body of teaching in the original, the definite article there, that "the is there. the sound doctrine. Uh, so, Scripture, as we, the Bible that is in your hands, authored and inspired by the Holy Spirit, sound doctrine is what you have in your hand. This recognisable body of, of sound doctrine is to be taught in the church. But there are also things that must be identifiable with that teaching. And these are things that are, as it says in verse 1, in accord with sound doctrine. Namely, a healthy, a fun, a a joyful, enriching, distinctive Christian life. As we wait for all the glory and joy that is to come, and we'll look a lot more at that next week. Our waiting as the church of God, as Christians, those saved by Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross for our sins in our place. Our waiting should be in hope, as we'll see next week, because we have heard understood, and and moulded our life on sound doctrine. Teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. But who must do the teaching, and specifically, what teaching must come to the various groups that are represented in the church in Crete, namely here? You'll see the groups mentioned, as you probably, as they were read through just a moment ago, verses 1 to 10. Note that it is not an exhaustive list. Perhaps most notably, young young unmarried women do not get any mention at all. Because the assumption in verse 4 is that uh, any woman that was young would be married. uh, Which was true for the vast majority of women in that day. But do you therefore dismiss all that is said if you don't fit into that particular category here, you're not directly addressed because of the circumstances of your life. Well, I think there is much to learn, even if you stand outside one of the categories mentioned. I think there's much to learn, much to aspire toward, as I hope you'll see. So teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. And the first group we're going to mention are the older men. What ought they to be taught so that they can wait well and be spiritually healthy in this life, this present age? Let's turn to the older men. Look at it, verse two. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-control. There's some there's an older man picture, I think, coming up. Some of my favorite oldest men. There we go. Worthy of respect, self controlled, sound in faith, in love and endurance. So I guess you can see why the difference if you know those characters from The Muppets. You could put these uh, instructions, I think, in two categories. If you look down at them, I suppose one, uh, some of those uh, instructions fall in the line of dignity and some in the line of maturity. Older men uh, ought to have a certain gravitas, shouldn't they? Which signifies both their seniority in, the, in this world, in the culture but also express their, their inner self-control as well. I can think of a few men like that I've had, I've had the privilege of knowing over a number of years. I can think of a man at the previous church I used to work in who was an extremely um, able man who owned his own law firm. um was obviously a very wealthy man. He could have had anything he wanted, any car, any house, any possession. But he didn't go from one to either one extreme of you know, denying himself of anything, but he didn't go to the other extreme of just spoiling himself with everything either. Because his wealth, you see, never defined him. Because he was self-controlled in that area. Uh, And as I could see, and it was demonstrated in his life, he was self-controlled in a number of areas. It was a delight to see. See, what defined him for me was the fact that he would come and see me, um, I guess probably once a month, and just say simply... How can I pray for you this week? And I knew he would. That's that's an older man. And in meetings, however heated they became, he was always temperate, as the word says here. Not looking for an argument. He never tried to prove his point needlessly. Young men sometimes do that, don't they? He always dragged us back to the Bible, not only in terms of the content of our ministry, but also in the, the conduct of our lives. Proverbs 20, verse 29, says this. The glory of the young man is their strength. Gray hair is the splendor of the old. There's a weakness that comes with age, follically, as well as other ways. The strength is perhaps not quite as that it used to be you know, in their their younger years. You might get a little bit slower, a little bit more timid, a bit more forgetful, a bit more irritable, as the men on the screen were. And Paul is implicitly saying here, older men, you may have a tendency toward those weaknesses, but grumpy old men, as there was a film recently in Hollywood, wasn't it, Grumpy old men, that is not a model to be encouraged. Gray hair is the splendor of the old, the Proverbs say. And that, their age ought not to be defined by weakness and failing faculties, but rather by wisdom and being sound in every aspect of character. You see at the end of verse 2, the three elements of the character that ought to be sound. Faith, love, and endurance. That's an older man. That's how older men should be encouraged to be. Now we may not have any gray beards here as the Puritans used to describe older men. Uh, Because, you know, we're quite a young congregation, but we need older men. That is, we need some men to grow up. Older women, verse 3 to halfway through verse 4. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live, uh, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women So Titus and the elders appointed, as we looked back in chapter 1, are to teach the older women. I think in three areas that comes out of these these, uh, verse and a half here. Firstly, we see that word reverence. Do you see that one? That is holy. And literally, it's like priestess-like. That's what it means in the original. It's the only time this word is used in the whole of the New Testament. But it it seems to encourage a life that is obviously both privately and publicly holy. Uh, and, And... Pure. I suppose also, practically, that would be teachable, not stubborn. So reverent, firstly. But secondly, older women are warned of two things. Do you see those? Against slander and much wine. Again, by implication, Paul is saying that there is a tendency toward that within older women. That's not for me to say, but there's a tendency toward those weaknesses not in all, but a tendency toward. Slander is usually the end point of gossip, isn't it? Which is fueled by the, the magazines you read, the internet um, pages you look at, the office chat, maybe. So, obviously, if you're in this category, you need to be careful with what you read and who you listen to. See, you can be an old woman, can't you? in many ways, before you are actually an old woman. Be careful. But slander and gossip are usually the outworking of a a deeper, more complicated struggle that many women face, and also men too. And that is simply insecurity. That could be caused by multiple multiple factors, can't it? Body image, upbringing, relationship status. The list could be endless. But also... (laughs) Is the list of the ways that insecurity can manifest itself. Think about the two that have been warned here: gossip and much wine, or slander, much wine. Much wine. See what does slander do? It kind of relativizes, doesn't it? Insecurity, in bringing someone down, you're saying that makes me feel a little bit better about myself. If you gossip about someone, you're dragging them down just to hold your head above or raise yourself up. A glass of wine. What does that do to insecurity? It just numbs it for a little while, and then you need another glass, and then another glass, and then another glass. Be warned. Know your tendency. Thirdly, older women are instructed to positively now. There's been too negative. Positively, there teach. At the end of verse three. What is good? It says that is of course godly living. To teach to be uh, uh, young women to be godly, as we'll see. But also a life that benefits the community. We'll see that at the beginning of Ch- Titus chapter 3. That there's an outward looking goodness that's uh, to be demonstrated. But older women are to train younger women. That's the third element to their, what their I suppose. I do note though, it's not the role of Titus to teach or to train the younger women of course, Titus and the elders are to train the older men and the older women. But the younger women, the training of them falls to the holy and godly matrons, as the Book of Common Prayer used to put them. If you're a holy and godly matron, that just means you're an older woman. Okay, that's the way they put it. But the problem, I guess, that we have here is that no one wants to be called an older woman. It, it, it actually can seem quite offensive, can't it? Yeah, you're getting a bit older now. It's a term of abuse rather than of esteem and affection. And you may think that you don't want to be an older woman. Well, maybe some of you are in terms of this congregation here because we're quite a young congregation. You may be older than many. And if you are, live like it. Just because the culture has demeaned women of age, you know, just because the BBC will not have any kind of news presenters now, female news presenters over a certain age. Have you seen their kind of cut off now? There's been lots of press about it recently. It doesn't mean that you should not aspire, just because of what the culture is doing, to being the older woman as defined by Scripture. The need is there. Just look out. Young women need to hear of the struggles and the realities of life, the relentless, exhausting uh, kind of pattern of work life. Young women need to know of the disappointment that relationships can and have brought in your life, uh, the, the kind of uh, the struggles of marriage life, in fact, perhaps the heartbreak of childlessness. They need to hear of these realities and even the frustration of having children. There are so many women in Earlsfield who need and to see and hear the reality of biblical wisdom that speaks to the reality that they are facing. There are hundreds of women out there who do coffee of a, you know, a Monday, Tuesday morning. I, I see them out there pushing around their little idols in their thousand pound buggies. And many of them are put on amazing pretense, but you scratch the surface and they feel like they are so out of their depths well maybe that is you and that is why a healthy church needs older women to teach not nag but teach graciously is that you? and should it be you? thirdly to younger women halfway through verse 4 Yeah, we've kind of got there. There we go. I had a little smirk, so I thought it might be that picture. The older women are to live and to teach in a godly manner so that they can, and we see verse 4, can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, verse 5, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one can malign the word of God. Now again, notice the the anticipated context here. It's a union of marriage. Okay. Married women are addressed, although some of what is taught here is not specific to the marriage union, is it? So we all, uh, younger women, all, all to listen here. But if married, firstly the younger women are to love. Uh, we see, it seems obvious, doesn't it? But the term used is not specifically speaking um, of the, emotional, the emotion, the feeling of love. Neither is it directly speaking of the erotic loves experienced between husband and wife. Important though they may be, they're not the most important. The love encouraged here, that the older woman should have taught and exemplified, is a love that is sacrificial. A love that serves. Notice it requires training. It's interesting, says training. That is, as sinful people, we we all struggle, don't we? to sacrificially serve anyone other than ourselves. Now, This is a very demanding calling, but one that is essential for stable and loving marriages and also in maturing and growing churches. If married younger women, love your husbands and also your children there as well. We have got time to go into that, but that's fine. I hope that is being modelled to you by those who have been married for more years than you have. Now to verse 5, younger women. Again, uh, to be trained because it doesn't come naturally in the culture then or in the culture today. Trained in what? Firstly, to be self-controlled and pure, it says. Where? Well, you know, don't you? Maybe your thought life, I don't know. Maybe in the times you spend, drinks after work or something like that. Maybe in the discontentment of your circumstances. Uh, Maybe if you're looking at pornography, apparently that's an... Are very much an increasing um, problem amongst younger women at the moment. Well, those are a few examples, but again, the list is endless, and it's bespoke to every individual here. Young women, allow yourselves to be trained, to be disciplined, to be disciplined and pure. Think about what you wear, how you talk to men in the office, wh- where you go out and who you go out with. What is purity in, in, in what we're looking at here? It's, it's that untainted, spotlessness, fresh, distinctive life. It's longed for, isn't it? In your heart, I guess. But it is so hard to live. Therefore, it's calling you to humble yourself. So that you might be trained by sound doctrine. That, that by those that are more mature than yourself. Don't be stubborn when someone challenges you. To, hey, How are you thinking about those things? What about that decision in your life? When someone you, challenges you, just think for a moment. Do you really know best? Or are they lovingly guiding you, directing you, teaching you sound doctrine? Maybe, maybe, you just need to listen. Further training is important. Be busy at home. This one sounds exciting, doesn't it? Now, Paul is not opposing anyone who's seeking to uh, launch themselves into a, a, a career. Many of you are doing that incredibly successfully. No, I think rather the context, the main challenge here, uh, and the context in the culture that was specifically mentioned in a parallel passage in uh, one of the other pastoral letters, 1 Timothy chapter 5, for example, it's implied here, but... What the message is there, I'll read it too. It says that women, the younger women had a habit of being idle and going about from house to house. Hence the picture. The warning is one against, I think, neglect. The instruction isn't that she makes lovely little cupcakes every day or anything like that. It's not that. But rather so she doesn't squander her time. Now I know for most... Most of you here, that is never even going to be a possibility, because you work so hard. But I want to encourage you from here, it should never be a dream. Desperate housewives, you see, are not the ideal, in so many ways, by the way. I haven't got time to comment on that, but there we go. You see, to coffee, to go to the gym, you know, outside of the home, away from the children, get the nanny in, all this kind of stuff. Even if if the excuse is you want to go and do ministry, if you neglect your husband and your children in doing that, it can never be biblically encouraged. Go on, it says be kind. Uh, I don't want to, it seems pretty obvious, but in the context here, I mean, hospitality might be a good thing to kind of point towards here, but kindness, we know what that looks like, don't we? But lastly, and probably most difficultly, be subject to their husbands. Now we must be clear that what being subject means does not imply any inferiority. But rather a recognition that with equal value of the sexes in God's creation, made in his image, God has established an order which includes, within the context of marriage, a headship of the male. Now that's controversial. We're going to come back to why that is so at the end. Um, but younger women, just to conclude, married or not, self-control, purity, busy, kind, and subject to husbands if married. That's it. Let's go on. Younger men. Simple instruction for simple people. <clears throat> Similarly encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. It doesn't take anyone of great intellect, does it, to work out our struggle, younger men. Let's, um, let me say four very brief things about this, if I, if I may. Firstly, if you are a younger man here, know your struggle and admit it to yourself and before God. And ask for forgiveness. And begin to know and realize that Jesus has dealt with everything that your lack of self-control has led you toward that Jesus has taken on himself with nails driven through his wrists and his ankles every bit of punishment that your lack of self-control has brought into your life. That sin has been dealt with on the cross and you need to ask for forgiveness and know that it's been left there, been punished there through Jesus. And as a result, start living as, as someone with that truth in your heart and your mind, someone who is forgiven, who's a recipient of grace. Don't listen to the devil's lies, who loves to deceive us and say, wallow in your guilt and shame and go back to that lack of self control. Christ died for that sin, that lack of self control. So let it go. It's been dealt with. Secondly, young men, know your struggle and know that, that controlling it is possible. That is, I used the old language, kind of chastity before marriage, fidelity when married. That is not a pipe dream. Paul cannot, and God through Paul, cannot be exhorting you to an impossibility. It is possible. Thirdly, young men, know your struggle for what it is. See, if you you do struggle with sexual sin, pornography, and I know some of you do, or a lack of self-control in other areas of life, don't let that linger. Compounding that sin will only make it more difficult for it to be controlled in the future. See, porn is not painless fun, as so many in the media would like to suggest it is. It destroys relationships and it destroys lives. So get real. Fourthly, young men, know your struggle and be honest with someone who understands grace. Grace will appear more in the passage next week, but I think it must speak into this situation here. And I want to encourage certainly the women in the congregation Um, If a man ever admits to you that they are struggling with, let's say, lust or pornography, don't you dare berate them. Take the plank out of your own eye first and love them. Try to understand the struggle that they face. It is different to yours, maybe, but it's still a struggle. And remind them continually that in Christ, they are loved more than they've ever known. And they are clean they feel dirty and they are precious. As one American pastor regularly says, there are too many boys that shave in churches. And some of us, I guess, we do need to grow up. We need to start fighting that lack of self-control in our lives. We need to put practical measures in place and accountability structures around us. For some of us, we just need to get busy, I guess, as well. Because... I don't know about you guys, but isn't it the fact that when you're, you know, if you're involved in doing lots of things, you know, socially, uh, maybe in sport, in the community, uh, we actually find that we're more self-controlled because it's those times, perhaps late at night, when when we're alone and our insecurities work their way out in destructive habits. That's when it really pinches, isn't it? Young men, this is an encouragement, by the way. Be self-controlled. Think about what you're going to do. Go to bed early tonight. Set your alarm a little earlier tomorrow morning. Get up and listen to God's voice in his word and start a conversation with him. Even if you haven't had a conversation with him in months, maybe even years. It won't click straight away though, will it? A relationship, you can't establish it in minutes. But begin the investment tomorrow morning. And we as a church, we need you to grow up. And we need you to be content and self controlled. Now, we do love you and we love carrying you in your struggles. But you don't want that to last forever, do you? Fifthly, Titus. He turns here, we get to verse 7. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us now titus is an elder the presbyter bishop we looked at a lot of that last week so i'm not going to look at some of the the responsibilities there's a little kind of intermingling of what what had happened before in chapter one so i don't want to focus on that but i want you to note the importance of example here set them example it says show integrity demonstrate it See, we all need, don't we, models in life to follow, to give us direction, to, to challenge us, and, and even to inspire us. And that can be you and ought to be you. So set an example to whoever you are in life. If, you, if you're young, set an example to my boys. Yes, the elders have a greater responsibility in this for the church, but we all bear the responsibility to some degree. Lastly, slaves, verse 9 and 10. I'll let you read that uh, if you want to in just a second. I haven't got much time here, but I want to spend three quick points on what, you know, the, the point here about slaves. Firstly, slaves in that culture are completely different um, to the slavery that we have known in this country, in North America, um, in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries. Okay? Slaves that, in this culture would have put themselves into slavery sometimes as an act of social mobility. Um, it was an accepted part of culture, and the individual had rights, they were loved, they were part of um, that family, um, and they also could buy themselves out of slavery, if possible, if they had managed to accumulate that kind of wealth. So that's the first point. Secondly, the link, though not direct, is there, and it's shown in other of Paul's letters. Um, we, we must see between slaves and masters, a kind of an, a, a boss's-employee's kind of uh, relationship here. So therefore, it applies to many of us, isn't it? We're under bosses within work. Thirdly, what is to be taught? I think there are two elements here, work and character. Do you see that? Work hard and be trusted in everything. The same is true in the city, in the school, in the hospital, wherever you find yourself in a place of work. Now, I want to bring this all to a close because we're kind of coming short of time here. But throughout um, these first two chapters of the letter of Titus, we've we've been given a number of contrasts, haven't we? And you can think of back in chapter one, the the character and the conduct of the elder versus the character and the conduct of the false teacher in the church in Crete. And then you also have seen that those who ignore and disobey God, the Cretans, um, generally, and then also those who listen to God's word, who obey sound doctrine and live according to it. That's what we've seen today. And what I want to say is, with those contrasts, I want to say, why bother being one rather than the other? Well, firstly, because living in this, what you might say theologically, a complementarian way it is God's way. With specific leaders, elders in the church who are male, husbands in marriages leading that family and that household and that marriage, older women teaching, leading younger women, this is God's way. It seems archaic, doesn't it? Lacking equality. That's maybe how you're feeling. And that's primarily because of the culture we live in. But in reality, what we see, and we haven't got time to spell it out, it upholds equality. And what it does, it just appreciates differences in role. Elders lead. Husbands lead. All the women lead and teach, but they do so out of love, sacrificially serving those that they do teach and lead. Why? Because God, through His Word, exhorts us to this countercultural calling, and I think for two final main reasons. Firstly, and most importantly, because the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit complement each other in this way. The Son submits willingly to the Father, most notably in the Garden of Gethsemane before. He would go and be killed on a cross. And the spirit is given to continue Christ's work after he's glorified. Therefore, if we choose to ignore God's ordering of relationships, both within culture and within the church, it isn't simply something that is confined within these kind of four walls. You are essentially saying to God himself, you got it wrong in your nature. And secondly, if you choose to ignore this ordering of the loving, sacrificial relationship spelled out in here in Titus, which is so countercultural, you're essentially saying to God, "Your word is wrong." Hence why Paul, on three occasions in this passage, says to the church in Crete, "Do not malign your word." He says of similar kind of nuanced things. "Do not malign your word, rather make it attractive." You see that back in verse 5 subject um, to the younger women um, are to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. That is, if you dare to live like this, this countercultural way, no one will see any contradiction in the way that you are living and what you believe and what is shown clearly in God's word. Verse 8 Titus says to have soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that no one um, who opposes you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Likewise, it goes on in verse 10, slaves are to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way that will make the teaching of God, about God our Saviour, attract, attractive. Sorry, You see, a healthy church is one who is listening to sound doctrine and living in accord with sound doctrine. We will not be undermining the word of God And through our relationships, we'll be making the Word of God, that sound doctrine, attractive for everyone to see. It will be attractive to us because we're living as God intends us to live. It will be attractive to the world around us because they'll see it working. And most importantly and ultimately, it will be attractive to God because it's the way He's ordained it. So, are we healthy? And maybe individually we need to ask, are you healthy? Teach sound doctrine. That's how you get healthy. Let's pray. Maybe just a moment to consider ourselves in all of those little um, sections. And maybe something where we need to submit ourselves to God and his word and to hear and obey and live in accord with sound doctrine.